This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks, and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural, and always free from sweeteners, fillers, and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com. That's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T.com. Use the code FABULOUSLY10, that's one zero, to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases, not valid on subscribe and save. Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 174 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. There is now only two weeks until we kick off our 30-day carnivore challenge. Some of the group have been having a practice run before we get started, and there have been lots of ideas that have been shared in our group. Are you unsure if you should join or not? Have you been low-carb or keto for a while? Maybe you've been wondering if you could even do carnivore. Doing it in a group with others and having a buddy means you're more likely to be successful than by doing it by yourself. At the end of the 30 days, you will have a good idea if you will benefit from being carnivore or not. You may shift some unresolved health issues that have persisted. Even if you decide it isn't for you, you will have learned something about yourself. You still have time to join us, so go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash three zero DCC hyphen Jan 24. Until the 14th of January 24, there's a discount code EB230 DCC 2024. And after the 14th of Jan, there won't be any more further discounts. So if you want to get into the challenge with a discount, you only have three days from the release of this episode to sign up. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Paul Kolodzik. Paul approached me and asked if I'd be interested in finding out more about his approach to weight loss, health improvement and disease prevention using a CGM, a constant glucose monitor. I was very interested. So let me tell you about Dr. Paul. Paul Kolodzik, MD, is board certified by both the American Board of Preventive Medicine and the American Board of Emergency Physicians. In a 30-year emergency room career, he has cared for many patients in crisis and has witnessed firsthand the failures of mainstream diets and the medical system overall, which prioritises medications and surgery over diet and lifestyle changes to prevent and reverse disease. In his metabolic health practice, Dr. Kolodzik uses the technology of continuous glucose monitoring, CGM, previously used only by diabetics to help his patients achieve weight loss and improved health. In his recently published book, The Continuous Glucose Monitoring Revolution for Non-Diabetics, Dr. Kolodzik shares how he's helped thousands of patients lose weight and prevent and reverse metabolic diseases such as hypertension, high cholesterol, prediabetes, GERD, sleep apnea, fatty liver disease and others using CGM. In this book, he presents a comprehensive program for metabolic health success using CGMs. Dr. Kolodzik graduated from the University of Notre Dame 
and completed medical school and residency at Wright State University, where he served as chief resident. He is a founding member of the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners. Let's hear what Paul has to share. Welcome, Dr. Paul, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me. And we always start with, where in the world are you? All right. I'm in the States, in Ohio, the heart of the Midwest, so the southern part of the state, and uh, actually have lived in this area my entire life, except for going away to school for a while. Excellent. Lovely. I haven't been to Ohio. There. Um, so why don't you start by telling us, because I think we often, we, we speak to lots of people that are just like me, that have been on the journey, um, but I think it's much harder for doctors because they're so constrained by what they're taught and things like that. Why don't you take us through how you came to low carb and what made you implement it in your practice? Okay. So, so my background is as an emergency physician. I spent 25 years in the emergency department and then evolved uh, to have a metabolic health practice now. Um, and the way I came to low carb, quite honestly, is seeing uh, the preventable disease that presents in the emergency department, um, the vascular problems, which, you know, are largely pre preventable with a controlled blood sugar. So that would be the diabetic kidney disease and the peripheral vascular disease and the strokes and the heart attacks and the peripheral neuropathy. So um, after taking care of those patients in that setting of the emergency department for many, many years, um, I realized that, that people could be proactive and prevent many of these problems from occurring to them. And so I became interested in how that could be achieved. And of course, of course low carb was the answer to that. Uh, I embraced that myself and then subsequently opened a metabolic health practice um, to help other patients achieve success. So how did you come across low carb? What, 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 in your journey, it led you to find out that low carb works in the metabolic health space. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that struck me was that I would take care of all these diabetic patients um, and, and they didn't have an understanding uh, of the way carbs impacted their blood sugar. Um, and I don't know if that's a function of the healthcare system in the United States and, you know, primary care doctors being so pressed and really not having the time to spend with patients. I'm not, I'm not, you know, being negative about primary care docs. I think they're the back backbone of medicine. Um, but, but they're now relegated to these short 20 minute visits where really they have uh, time to do little more than disease management, which is, you know, we're going to tweak your blood pressure medicine. Oh, your sugar's a little bit high. Maybe we'll adjust your, your diabetic medicine. Um, and, and so um, patients really were not getting a message and getting an understanding of, uh, of you know, how their, their health was being impacted, primarily by blood sugar, but also obesity. And of course, the two are related. Um, and it, it's almost like they had, to, they had to unlearn the food pyramid in order to achieve success. Um, and, and so that's really what motivated me and how I came to it. And then, of course, I embraced it uh, personally with success. I didn't need to lose a lot of weight. Um, I do have diabetes in my family, so I'm concerned about that long term. Um, but but I embraced it personally and then realized how, you know, many patients could have success reversing their prediabetes, controlling their blood glucose, even if they're diabetic, getting off medications. And that really was my motivation. Yeah. Did you notice any benefit benefits personally? Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, I mean, it, it's it, it's the typical stuff. It's, it's, you know, first of all, I'm a big advocate of continuous glucose monitors, which we will talk about. Yeah. Um, and I got interested enough to put a continuous glucose monitor on. Um, and, uh, you know, after seeing... You know, the persistently high levels after I ate carbs, quite honestly, the variability, the variability that results from a spike in blood glucose and then subsequent spike in insulin, you know, and the the uh, impact on your energy level and the impact on your mental clarity. 
um, and then uh, understanding how I could improve that by following the numbers on my CGM and, and a diet um, that that is guided by that. R really, you know, once once you achieve that, there's r really no turning back. You realize that that this is the best way for you to be healthy long term. Mm, yeah. So let's talk about constant glucose monitor because you obviously use it quite a lot in your practice. So. I'm sure a lot of the listeners already know about constant glucose monitors, but for those that don't, maybe just go in a little bit about the constant glucose monitor and then how you use it in your practice. Sure. Um, so we use CGMs in the practice routinely, and these devices were initially um, created to help diabetics guide their insulin levels, but I think they're exceptionally valuable for non-diabetics to understand what's going on with their blood glucose, and especially pre-diabetics who you wanna pull back from the edge of progressing to diabetes. Um, so these are devices where you put a sensor on the back of your arm, you may have seen them on the back of the arms of diabetics, um, and they give you 24 seven blood glucose readings. Um, they're applied, um, they need to be switched out every two weeks, but a small sensor is placed under the skin, they don't hurt at all. Um, and that sensor equilibrates with the blood glucose in the area. Um, and then you, you get these readings that you can follow continuously. So they're a great tool. You know, in my experience, you can have a doc that, you know, talks to a patient for years about, you know, you got to watch your diet, you got to watch, you know, your blood sugar. Um, and they, they often don't get the message. And then you put a CGM on them. And once they see those curves, once they see those high levels, um, they, they understand for the first time. So I believe really they can be life-changing. Mm. Do you think though, that people don't understand because the doctor doesn't explain properly what the foods are that are going to ca cause those spikes and the downside of that do you think that's partly the oh that's wrong messaging yeah that's definitely the reason you know i mean we go back to the in the states to the you know the food pyramid and that we were taught that carbs are the foundation of your diet and medicine changes slowly you know physicians embrace that as well you know and here we are 50 years later um and, and with with still medicine changing very slowly I see diabetics and they don't really even understand the relationship between carb ingestion and what their blood sugar is. Um, and, and the model in the States now, this is a little bit different than it was when I got out of my training. When I got out of my training, there were still docs in private practices, small group practices. Most of the docs now in the States work for health systems um, or large organizations. And um, the, the focus there is, is that their schedules are very regimented. They only have about 20 minutes usually with a patient. Um, and they really don't have time to explain these issues. First of all, many docs still, you know, even clinicians don't understand that, you know, the value of a low carb diet for these patients. They're still kind of working off the old paradigm of the food pyramid, even though I think that's changing slowly. Um, but they don't have the time to do much more than disease management, tweak your blood pressure medicine, tweak your insulin. Um, so they don't have time to address it. And therefore, patients really don't understand. And I would say, you know, and again, I'm not I'm not being negative, but but a lot of the nutritional community, as you well know, still uh, is is not embracing uh, uh, even a moderate carb approach at, at times for their patients. So medicine changes slowly, and it will take generations to to uh, to to change all this. But it, it, you know the facts are undeniable that yet you know if if you uh, are pre diabetic or diabetic or you just want to be healthy a low carb or keto approach is how you will get there. Mm. So when you're working with clients, how are you using the CGMs? Because okay. in my mind, if you do a ketogenic diet, your chances are you don't need a CGM. So why do you think that's they're so important? Well, I, I use them in two phases. Um, I think they're very important in a diagnostic phase. So most patients that come to me are kind of self-selected they're overweight or they've had some metabolic health problems. So, so early on, they have not yet embraced the keto approach. So there's, a, you know, an educational challenge there. 
Um, so what I usually do is put a CGM on a patient and I ask them not to change their diet for a couple of weeks. You know, let's, let's just see, you know, where you live in terms of what your blood sugar is looking like. Um, and you know, again, they go through that phase where they see how high their numbers are, or they see the variability that exists. Um, and then based on that information, we set them up on a program that includes a low carb or a keto approach. Um, I do have many patients that just choose to go low carb, don't go completely keto. Um, and then we use the CGM to guide their diet. And because th these patients are often unfamiliar with the low carb approach to begin with, they can be very, the CGM can be a very valuable tool to guide the diet early on. Now, you know, do they need it indefinitely? Usually not. I usually work with them using a CGM off and on for about six month period of time. Um, until they learn how to, you know, modify their diet appropriately. Initially, that's usually in conjunction with an app to count their macros um, and, and to help guide their diet. Um, but again, I think the CGMs can be very valuable, both diagnostically uh, to help people understand what's going on and then therapeutically to guide the diet. And, and then e even long-term use intermittently, I think, can be valuable to keep people on track. Yeah. I, I agree, you know, and I, when I'm working with clients, I will quite often get them to get a CGM for the first couple, first two weeks and get them to use one week without changing their diet and then the second week changing their diet so they can, you know, quite quickly they can see the difference. But I see what you're saying is over a longer period of time, it's really going to guide what they're choosing. Yeah. And I, you know, you have patients that have a different affinity for it. I, I actually have had, you know, some patients that put a CGM on their arm and they're, you know, uh, I don't, we use Abbott, freestyle Abbott's over here. You know, they have to scan you. I'll have some patients and they'll scan 40 times in the first day because they're just, you know, uh, quite honestly mesmerized at time with what the, the data will show them. Um, and then that usually backs off over a period of time as they gain familiarity and gain more comfort with their diet. Um, but I've had some patients that just, you know, they like the devices and they want to be on, on them long term um, because it keeps them on track. Uh, they, I, I have some patients that like the fact that um, I'm able to hold them accountable uh, because I can review their data remotely. Um, no. And it's not that I intervene. It's not, you know, like somebody has a bad evening and I, you know, get on them about it. But if they're, you know, coming a little bit off track over a period of, you know, a number of days, then we'll reach out to them to make sure we can help get them back on track. And then the other you know, reinforcing uh, process here is that, you know, usually they, they achieve success in terms of their metabolic health goals, whether that's lower blood sugar or, um, you know, weight loss. Um, and th then that's encouraging to that for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. And, and what I, and so in America, it's slightly different because I think you have to get a doctor to prescribe it. Don't you, you have to, yeah, you do. They have to be prescribed. Is that not the case in the UK? No, we can just buy them oh. from Abbott's. So, oh, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. So anyone can buy them. They're, you know, then they're expensive. I think they're probably similar price, um, but we can just put, order one online and then and it comes in the yeah. post. So yeah, that, that, that's great. Yeah, and and they are, you know, it is, it, you know, an ongoing expense. And I don't know what um, the cost is over there, but over here, um, it's interesting. Despite um, a patient not being diabetic oftentimes their insurance will defray the cost of it. So they're usually, uh, most of my patients on private insurance here, I know you have a different system over there, um, but um, most of my patients on private insurance uh, pay about 35 bucks for a sensor that'll last a couple of weeks. And, you know, to, to do that, you, you know, a few times um, to get an understanding of what's going on with you metabolically and in potentially change the direction of your health long term, I think is a pretty good deal to tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, $35 is a good price. I mean, here they're 60 pounds, which is yeah. probably around $55, something like that. So it's a lot yeah. more expensive, but we can get them, yeah. you know, we can choose to yeah. have them. Anyone can choose to get one. Any listener listening in the UK can choose to get one. So that's, yeah. that's a 
plus side of it, I guess, but it is more expensive if you're doing it long term. It works out a lot more expensive. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So you've got them changing their diet. They're following, you know, they can see what they're doing and you can see what they're doing, which I always find is very good because I think people are more likely, even if you're not watching everything that they're doing, I think people are more likely to stick to the plan if they know someone is checking up on them. So it's an accountability, right. it's an accountability to themselves and to their practitioner. Right. And, and you know, a lot of people have tried, um, you, you know, different diets without success. Um, and, you know, they come to me looking for that accountability, that guidance, you know, they know they're going to be meeting with me every couple of weeks to start. And then monthly, they know my nutrition coach is going to be calling them a couple times a month. So people are looking for, you know, a, a, a program where they are held accountable because they've tried to do it at times on their own. And then during this whole process, there's an education curve as well um, related to, you, you know, what is going on physiologically um, and understanding how, you know, a low carb approach results in, you know, weight loss as opposed to a calories in calories out model, you know, and, and the calories in calories out model is still emphasized, you know, in, in a lot of locations, a lot, you know, in the U.S. So we kind of have to change their thinking and understanding you know, insulin physiology um, and and what's going on with, you know, managing your blood glucose that will allow you to lose weight and meet your metabolic goals as opposed to just trying to starve yourself, which I think is not sustainable for a lifetime. No, definitely not. And that's why diets don't work, because they're, they're not sustainable and and not good for you, you know, metabolically, definitely not good for you. Yeah. I mentioned, um, you know, I have many patients that, that that don't understand the close connection between carbohydrate intake and blood glucose. So the CGMs help with that. I, I you know, I, I don't know if um, this is being redundant to previous talks you've had on your program, but I try to take a really simple approach to uh, explaining the physiology, which is basically, you know, cars become blood glucose in your system. Dr. Unwin's famous infographics, you know, you know, um, you, you know, a bowl of cornflakes equals this many tablespoonfuls of sugar. Um, but people don't understand that. But once they understand that carbohydrates become blood glucose in your system immediately, then they can begin to understand the physiology. And I, and I give people this simple explanation. Basically, eat a carb, it becomes blood glucose. Blood glucose rises your insulin spikes so far so good insulin drives that blood glucose into your organs think your muscles you know you're driving energy into your muscles your muscle needs energy to contract so far so good but when you eat excessive carbs over long periods of time that blood glucose stays elevated for a long period of time insulin keeps getting released but at some point, the muscles say, hey, we got plenty of glucose here. We got plenty of stored glucose called glycogen. And the muscles say, hey, stop insulin. We are, we are not going to listen to you anymore, insulin. And that's what insulin resistance is. I mean, that's the concept. The organs are reducing, uh, are, are rejecting the insulin signal at that point. And of course, what happens with that extra blood glucose? It goes to the liver and gets converted to fat and deposited around the middle. And that's what causes increase in visceral fat. And that's what causes fatty liver disease. And so once people just get with that simple explanation, begin to understand that physiology, um, then, then they kind of understand what their goals are in terms of keeping their blood glucose under control, often guided by uh, a CGM. So then I say, what we're trying to do is just reverse that process. We're trying to keep your blood glucose down a little bit so less insulin gets released. After a while, those organs are saying, rather than saying insulin, we resist you, they become more insulin sensitive. They want to listen to that signal. But if the blood glucose is low because um, the person's following a low-carb diet, um, there's not enough blood glucose to supply the energy that's needed. So what happens then? Well, those organs look down at the middle and say, oh, there's a source of energy that we need. There's those fatty acids around the middle. Let's start breaking down those fatty acids. 
and using that as, as a source of energy. And, and, and that's when weight is lost. So that's basically the, the blood glucose insulin model of weight loss and improved metabolic health. I, and, you know, it's, it, I, you know, it's more complex than that, but I think, you know, that understanding is pretty simple. We just want to turn to fatty acids as a source of energy as opposed to continued carb intake and, and high blood glucoses. Yeah, absolutely. So do you find that, so women of my age, so middle upper middle age maybe, um, who have weight around the stomach, so we're on a low-carb diet, we're keeping our carbs low, but we still have fat around the middle that doesn't shift. Any tips for that? Well, so so there is almost kind of a hierarchy of it, it gets tougher um, for women as they get older. Women are tougher than men. It, you know, it's just the physiology. You know, our our bodies want us to be fat. They they want you know to hang on extra fat because that incurs higher um, you know rate of survivability in past times when we didn't have food at our fingertips. You know, that's especially true of women because they bear children. Um, and um, so it, it is just tougher with women as they hit middle age, as you hit menopause, even as you get older. Um, so, um, I, you know, I think that's just the physiology. I think it's difficult to change. That being said, you, you know, if you put together a comprehensive program, usually um, all patients, no matter what their age or sex, can reach their goals. And so, you, you know, a program that is focused on low-carb or keto includes, which I'm sure we'll talk about, intermittent fasting. Um, and then strength training is the third component that's really important for women. Um, one, one thing is uh, strength training increases, excuse me, decreases insulin resistance because if you uh, have a little bit more muscle mass, you're increasing the quality and the receptivity of the insulin receptors on your muscles. You're going to soak up more insulin, soak up more blood glucose. Um, that's going to help you ultimately seek your organs to seek more fat as a source of energy. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, I think those are really the three legs of the stool. It's low carb keto, intermittent fasting, and then strength training. And the strength training for women is very important because of the relationship of muscle mass to osteoporosis as you get older, you know, bigger muscle mass puts more stress on your bones. When the bones get stressed, they respond by getting stronger. So the strength training component is really important. Yeah. And it's the sort of thing that women tend to shy away from because they think they don't want to get big muscles, but they're not going to get big muscles. They're just going to build strength. Yeah, I don't I, I don't see it. They're just going to build strength. There are even some articles in recent days that show even for fat loss, strength training outdoes cardiovascular. Um, so I really, you know, uh, my patients come to me and they get a little bit different story from me, which is than from your typical doctor, which, which is you can go ahead and eat fats. Okay. I want you eating fats. You know, obviously we need to talk about good fats and bad fats, but I want you eating fats. And you know what? You need to do a little bit of cardiovascular training, but I really don't want you to spend a lot of time on that elliptical. I really would much rather see you doing strength training because that's going to help your metabolic health and long-term it's going to be good for your overall health and the issue of osteoporosis. Yeah. And sarcopenia as well. Sarcopenia. Yeah. It, it, and you know, we're all swimming upstream as we get older, you know, it, it's, it, you know, seven to 10% of muscle mass lost per decade. Uh, once we get, you know, into our forties, um, you think about that. If you live to 80 or 90, that's a huge amount of muscle mass over time. And, and this issue also integrates into um, what I've seen in the emergency department. Uh, I've seen so many older patients over the years that become immobile. I mean, what, what's more important to us than our mobility? R really, not much. No. Um, you know, our mental status and our mobility. Um, but I've seen so many patients over the years that, that, that just can't get around because of length, leg strength reasons. They, they just haven't, you know, kept their, their muscles strong. And the importance of that in terms of long-term mobility is great. You know, the, the, the saying is don't skip leg day, you know, for your, for your uh, strength training workouts. 
Um, and just leg strength is, I, I think, so important. And muscle mass below the waist is so important. There's actually about 55% of our muscle mass below the waist. So uh, I put a huge emphasis on strength training for my patients, a huge emphasis on lower body strength training, you know, not, not complicated, simple things like squats. You know, for some of my patients, that's just, you know, without any weight, sitting up and down in a chair to start. Um, and then they build build from there, you know, move on to bands and then maybe move on to free weights. Uh, but the emphasis on strength training is very important. I, I don't tell them to ignore cardiovascular training, but in, in the States, the American Heart Association um, has, you know, guidelines of, you know, you get to 80% of your maximum heart rate, do that for 75 minutes a week, you're good. I ask my patients to meet that minimum requirement and then spend, you know, the other three or four or five hours a week that they have um, it, working out on strength training, because I think it's just so important and, and and quite honestly should be emphasized over cardiovascular for most people. So, so you're saying that one priority is strength training, um, particularly legs, but yeah. then yes, incorporate some cardiovascular 75 minutes a week yeah. at 80% maximum heart rate. Yeah, so the American Heart Association rules over here, and I, I need to be careful because the American Heart Association does some things in terms of endorsing foods that I don't agree with. Um, you know, unfortunately, a, a number of food processors are sponsors of the American Heart Association. So, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, low-carb foods or foods I think should should not be endorsed do get endorsed. But related to this issue, their science is that you need 75 minutes a week at 80% of your maximum heart rate or 150 minutes a week at 65% of your maximum heart rate. So, you know, if you take a, a, a person that's in their, their 60s, those numbers work out to, um, it, you know, you need a heart rate at 65% of max is going to be in the range of 110 or so. Um, so 150 minutes a week at 110, you know, brisk walk. My preference is, and this is what I do personally, is let's get your heart rate into that 80%, 80 to 85% of max range, which is going to be in the 130, 135 range for a you know person in their late 50s, early 60s, um, you know, and, and, and knock out that cardiovascular training in 75 minutes a week. You know, if you have on average, you know, time to do an hour, hour and 15 minute workout, you know, five days a week, that means you can knock off that cardio, knock out that cardiovascular, you know, in just 75 minutes and spend the rest of your time strength training. So I just want to clarify because I got, I got a bit confused. So are you saying 75 minutes per week or per day? No, 75 minutes per week. Per week. So AHA we're talking guidelines. maybe um three, not not even three yeah. sessions of 30 minutes, three sessions yeah. of 20 minutes, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Three, so a bit three more, 25 minute minutes. sessions. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. That's what I do myself. As I not I knock it out, you know, 25 minutes, three times a week. You know, the clock doesn't start until you get your heart rate above that level. You know, the warm-up period doesn't count. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, if you can quickly, you know, in three to five minutes, get your heart rate up for me, it's in the, you, you know, 128 range or so. Um, and I stay there for 25 minutes, three times a week, then I'm done with my cardiovascular. Um, and, and, you, you know, I can focus the time on strike training because I realize as I'm getting older, the sarcopenia issue uh, is a challenge. And, you know, I've seen these patients in the emergency department with sarcopenia and I don't want to go there. I want to hopefully have vitality and be mobile on my own, you, you know, for many years and, to come. Until the day you die, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Ho hopefully. Um, and, and, you know, we have, there's so much of this that we have control over, you know, we have control over our level of insulin resistance by our diet. We have control over uh, likely long-term mobility. Um, you, you know, you know, there's things that can occur accidents, you know, you could have a bad family history of diabetes and, and no matter how hard you try, it's not be able to stave it off, but that's a minority of people. Um, people have control over 
their health uh, to to a great degree. So I view my job as providing guidance to people to achieve that. And a lot of my practice, because people that are overweight or have insulin resistance or pre-diabetes or diabetes come to me, I'm able to help kind of redirect them. And and so they're going to have longevity and healthy longevity. And that's, you know, very satisfying from a clinician standpoint. Yeah. Which is probably very different to what you were seeing before you discovered low carb. Yeah. I mean, working in the emergency department, you're basically reactive to disease. You know, you intervene once disease exists. Um, So, you know, now I'm being proactive and, you, you know, the satisfaction you get from, you know, have, having a, you know, 20 year old that's already pre-diabetic and you help them understand these concepts and you basically redirect the course of their health for the next 60 years. I mean, and I'm not taking credit for that, but, but I get to participate in helping them understand that with a low carb and an intermittent fasting and a strength training approach. Um, you know, that, that they aren't going to progress to diabetes. Um, they aren't going to progress to the peripheral vascular problems in the, in the kidney disease. And so, um, you know, a lot, a lot of this is under their control. And once I have the opportunity to, to share with people that they have that power, and how they can achieve that again it's very satisfying yeah i just want to go back to um some questions around the cardiovascular disease so when you're saying 80 percent, are you saying max heart rate is 220 because i tend to think yeah. as the mafetone mes- method which is 180 minus your age so okay yeah the, the number the aha uses 220 minus age and then you yeah. take either 65 percent of that or 80 percent of that yeah perfect yeah. and then the other thing that i was going to mention is going back to the strength training part of it is how and you were working in erc so probably saw it a lot is older people who then um don't have enough muscle mass and fall and break yeah. something break a bone because their bones are not strong that right. is a big cause of accidental death. That is, you know, how older people die, more or less, isn't it? Yeah, a lot. I mean, older people fall and, you know, it's not, it, you know, you think at times, well, it's a neurological issue. They don't have good balance or it's a joint issue. They're having pain and arthritis. But I think the majority of the time, it's really just a strength issue. Um, it's just not enough muscle mass. And yeah, the, the falls occur primarily in the in, in the elderly. And, um, you, you know, the results of that can be devastating, head injuries, spine injuries, etc. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, for people to understand that they have control over these variables, I, I think is very important. Um, and, it, you know, when, when I'm able to work with them and have them understand that, you know, CGMs being part of that, understanding what's going on physiologically with you, um, then, then you can change things. And, uh, you know, I think medicine right now is set up so that we, we don't look at those kind of lifestyle interventions. We look more at, you know, uh, how, how can we use medicine to address an abnormal number, whether that be blood sugar or blood pressure or whatever. Um, and so I, I now am in a position where I have uh, a lot of primary care doctors referring patients to me. They don't have the time for this kind of intervention. Um, and they'll continue to me- medically manage the patient's issue- issues, um, but they'll turn over their metabolic health to me. And I, you know, get a lot of satisfaction from sending a patient back to them that can come off their blood pressure medicine or can have their insulin dosage reduced. Yeah, excellent. So we've covered um, insulin resistance, CGMs. We've done the strength training and exercise. Let's talk about intermittent fasting and how you incorporate that. Sure. People come to me with a variety of background in that area. And so I I work with patients to, um, you know, you know, see what level they can handle to begin with in terms of intermittent fasting and then and then move on from there so for some people they come to you in a 12-hour fast is a big deal they you know are used to eating in the evening and eating as soon as they get up so we start with you know what they can do usually that's 10 hours sometimes 12 hours and then we move on incrementally from there and and i really 
you know, I start by asking people, you know, when do you finish eating in the evening? You know, or or what what deadline in the evening can we set that you aren't going to eat after? You know, if it's 9 p.m., then let's set that. Okay. And then when are you going to eat in the morning? Um, and if they're used to eating when they're getting up, I, I ask them to consider pushing that back. Um, you know, this bit about, you know, breakfast being the most important mm-hmm. meal of the day and, you know, you got to eat every three or four hours through the day. It, 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 there's no scientific basis for that. I mean, historically, our ancestors didn't do that. They would, you know, kill a woolly mammoth and they would feast and then they might the hunt might not be good for two or three weeks and they would fast. Um, so, you, you know, that those that phrasing uh, of, you, you know, needing breakfast or eating frequently, I think, really evolved um, in the marketplace for, you know, food companies wanting to sell more food regularly. Um, And and so, um, you you know, I I don't see that. I don't believe that personally. Uh, I don't see that in my patients. And then, you you know, I guide them to move on in terms of their fasting regimens. And, you know, some some will move you know, a lot will move into a 16-8 fast. Um, some will go to an OMAD, you know, one meal a day fast. Um, I usually don't push longer fasts. I have some patients that will do a 24 or 36 hour fast. I usually don't push multi-day fasts um, unless somebody really wants to do that. And usually, you know, if that's the case, no more than two or three days. Um, but I think people can lower their insulin resistance and get what they need out of it just with a with a 16-8 or, you know, uh, uh, you know, 24 or a OMAD approach. I don't think they have to do more. Yeah. So that would be interesting because there's all sorts of um, thoughts around fasting and how long and what's good and what's not good. So what's your thinking around you don't need to do more than 20 hours or 36 hours? Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I just... I don't know if it adds a lot beyond that. Um, I think regularity of fasting is more important that you're doing it frequently on a daily basis, by and large. I, I do tell my patients that this doesn't need to dominate their lives. You know, if you're doing your fasting during the week and you want to go out for breakfast with your family on the weekend, yeah, I'm fine with that. You know, yeah, you're going, you're going to a wedding. Yeah, that's life. Enjoy life. But but let's have a basic pattern be your 16-8 or your 24 or your OMAD. Um, and, and I don't, you know, I don't know, you've probably had fasting experts on your program. Um, you know, fa- the reason fasting, I think, is helpful is because after low carb and keto, it's the second best mechanism to drive down insulin resistance. Yeah. Um, but but most of my patient population is comfortable just doing those limited fasts as opposed to prolonged many-day fasts. Yeah. I can relate and to that. I, actually, and when, I, and when I check fasting insulin, level, we should talk about fasting insulin levels a little bit because I always check those in my patients. Yeah, uh, let's I do see that. a good result um, w- with that type of fasting. So, so diagnostically, when patients come in, uh, in addition to the CGM, one of the most important tests I do is um, a fasting insulin level, which is not done very much in the States. Um, do do you see that much in Britain at all? It doesn't happen at all, which is something that I was going to mention is that I have now found somewhere where we can get insulin in the UK. You can get your insulin tested. Um, and so, and it's not terribly expensive. So I think I was talking, it's, it's a doctor that, that organizes this. And I think she was saying to me today, it's around 60 pounds for the yeah. insulin test and the blood draw. So the total yeah. 60 pounds or 70 pounds, something like that, which is a yeah. reasonable amount of money to do once a year, I think, or yeah, maybe absolutely. even twice a year. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So when my patients come in, I get a fasting insulin level on them. A lot of them have never heard of it. You know, I, I've had very few people that have come in and had one previously done. Once in a while, the OBGYNs will do it because there's a relationship to polycystic ovary disease and insulin levels. Um, but generally, they haven't had one done. And we have this, you know, cholesterol phobia in, in the States. Um, and it's like everybody's worried about 
you, you know, what their cholesterol level is, which, which I think, you know, is not nearly as important for most people as to what their fasting insulin level is. Yeah. Um, so we check fasting insulin level and then do a calculation called a HOMA IR. Have you talked about that on your program in the past? We, we haven't. I know that it, you need your fasting insulin and your HbA1c in order to calculate that. But we, yes, please tell us more about that. Right. So fasting insulin, you need a fasting blood glucose as well um, and a hemoglobin A1c and, and you plug it into a formula. It's just the term is HOMA, H-O-M-A dash I-R. And it is an acronym which stands for the homeostatic model of insulin resistance. And by plugging those two numbers in, you can get a picture of where that person's insulin resistance is. And then you can follow that over time uh, to see if the insulin resistance is improving. Um, so it's it's a very valuable test. Um, and, and what comes out is just a number. If it's less than three, you have no insulin resistance. If it's above three and then progressively higher, you have insulin resistance. Um, and it can be very valuable to people just to understand where they are and what their risks are long-term. So I do fasting insulin levels and HOMA IRs in all my patients. Um, you know, and, and the physiology here is that if your if your insulin level is up, it should be driving that blood glucose into your organs. You know, it's the key. The insulin is the key in the lock to drive that blood glucose into the organs. But if your insulin level is up and your blood sugar is not in an appropriately low level, then that means you're getting that insulin resistance where the organs are saying we aren't listening to you anymore, insulin. Um, and, and so, you know, if you end up having a high blood glucose and, and excuse me, a high insulin level and your blood glucose is not being driven down, then those are the components of the formula that will end up giving you an idea of what your insulin resistance is. Yeah. So it's fasting yeah. glucose rather than, than your HbA1c, is it? Yeah, it's really for, for that for that formula, it's fasting blood glucose and yeah. uh, fasting insulin level. Yeah. I, I do hemoglobin A1Cs as well. Because um, you can get interesting patterns where somebody has a hemoglobin A1C that's up, but they're fasting blood glucose is low, and you wonder where that's coming from. And then you put a CGM on them, and you see what their patterns look like during the day, um, and you understand where that's coming from. Sometimes that fasting blood glucose can be low um, because of the Dawn effect, you know, DAWN, where you're getting a little cortisol or adrenaline release in the morning. Um, that can drive your blood sugar up a little bit. So, um, so all those numbers can be very valuable. Yeah, and they all, you know, linking them all together gives you a good picture of of the yeah. health. Yeah, and a CGM. Well, the way I view a CGM is it, it gives you fasting blood glucose every day. Yeah, you know, every every morning that you have a CGM on, you can see what your fasting blood glucose is. So that that gives you a good idea where you are and really where you need to get to. Now, here's another question, because it's one that I've pondered myself. If you're going to have a fasting insulin test and the fasting glucose test, how many hours should you be fasting? Because if you go, if you say doing 16 hours, you're going to have a very different result to eight hours. But I'm guessing if you're doing tests over time, you need to keep it a similar sort of timing. Yeah, I usually have people try and fast 12 hours. I, I don't know if, that, if fasting a, another force to 16 really makes a big difference in the numbers. Uh, but fasting less, I think, can make a big difference in the numbers. So I ask people to just, you know, fast overnight 12 hours before you go get your blood glucose drawn and your insulin level drawn. Yeah, which reminds me that I need to get mine done again. So. Yeah, good. Good. <laughs> yeah, I think... It, you know, I've had patients come in, you know, uh, that, that have a cholesterol of 205 um, and then their blood glucose is, you, you know, 105 and, and their doctor spent, you know, a lot of time talking to them about a cholest their cholesterol, but not really a lot about where your blood glucose is and, you know, your insulin resistance is. And, and you know, for most people, I believe, you, you know, that fasting insulin level is much more important than a cholesterol level long term. And, mm. You know, at least with the degree of obesity and diabetes and prediabetes th that we have, the importance of of you know honing in on your uh, on, on your insulin resistance issue, I think for most patients, 
can be much more important than you know, where they are with their cholesterol. And have you talked in your program previously about the changes that people see with low carbon keto on their lipid profiles? Um, we have touched on it. Um, I think uh, some people are scared because sometimes it, it goes up. So yeah. cholesterol goes up. And then, of course, they're dealing with their doctors who are telling them that this is yeah. not good, even though personally i would probably and i'm not um, i'm not a physician so i'm not saying that but for me if i i've seen my um cholesterol go up but i'm not worried about it for me but i think people feel challenged because their doctors are telling them they need to go on a statin and yeah yeah we can you can talk through that as well yeah so this is interesting there's been a few studies in recent years that break down what happens on a low carb or ketogenic diet with different types of patients. Um, if, if a patient, and actually it can be broken down by BMI, if a patient has a low BMI to begin with, which is not the kind of patients that come to me, you know, <laughs> my patients self-select because they want to lose weight and they know that they maybe have some metabolic health problems growing. Um, but I have had a few patients over the years that are slender patients that are just interested in low carb and metabolic health. I, I will at times see a change in their cholesterol levels going up. But for patients with high BMIs, um, the recent studies, one done by uh, Dr. Lou, Ludwig out of Harvard, Trochlasian, I think, was an author on that um, study as well. Um, it shows that um, if you have a high BMI to begin with, you really don't see a significant change in cholesterol on a low-carb or keto diet. And that has been my experience with my patients that are overweight. You know, the cholesterol could go up a few points, could go down a few points, really doesn't change. HDL usually actually goes up because you got more fat in your diet. So the HDL is going up. And I'll tell you what I see that is remarkable is the drop in triglycerides associated with low carb and keto. I mean, I've had patients that have dropped their triglyceride levels from, you know, 310 to 74. Um, And the physiology there is that you're removing the substrate that forms triglycerides. Triglycerides are formed from that conversion of blood sugar to fat in the liver. And when you lower your blood sugar, there's less fuel for that process. And so the triglyceride production drops. Um, And I I continue to be impressed with how patients' triglycerides improve when they go on a low-carb, high-fat diet, Mm. because it's certainly counterintuitive. Yeah. And the markers for metabolic health are HDL, triglycerides, um fast hba1c or fasting blood sugar weight yeah. circumference and blood pressure so right. ldl doesn't even feature right. in, in that metabolic health profile yeah no no it doesn't um so ldl i again don't pay a lot of attention to you know if i have a patient that's concerned about it high cholesterol level um, you know, and, and I'll tell you that that's when you, you know, you're getting a 300, 350 range or whatever. And their LDL is supporting one of the reasons that high, that, that cholesterol was high. Um, then I, I will, you know, very occasionally send them on to a lipidologist, um, just to see what they think. Cause they'll do subfractions then, you know, the LP little a, um, the ApoB and, and, you know, determine really what their, if that, cholesterol is imposing a significant increased risk on them. Of course, you know, if you send a patient to a surgeon, they're going to want to operate. If you send a a patient with high cholesterol to a lipidologist, they're going to want to start a statin. So, you know, I realize that that goes with the territory. Um, But when patients have fairly high cholesterol levels, if they want to address it, then then I, I help them do that in that manner. But, you know, my patients should be worrying, should be much, much more concerned about their their level of insulin resistance than their cholesterol level. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that's. Yeah, yeah. I, it you know it comes under that metabolic health paradigm of blood sugar is is a key component, whereas LDL isn't. So right, it, yeah, but but what we've been taught since you can treat LDL with medications 
You know, we've been taught to care a lot more about LDL, um, you, you know, than we do about blood sugar and insulin resistance. So, you know, we, we have to change over time that paradigm. And of course, you know, there's not a lot of profitability uh, to be made from lowering insulin resistance through diet, you know, whereas there, there is, you know, a financial model for, you know, wanting to prescribe a statin. And I understand that. I mean, that's business, that's capitalism. I, I you know, I, I get that. Um, but I think it's allowed us to be misled over a period of many, many years. Yeah. And I think we need to differentiate because you're see, you're saying and seeing that it's a business model. It's a way of making profits and it's part of our capitalist capitalist society. Whereas most people would tend to think if my doctor is telling me it's because it's good for my health, which is not yeah. necessarily the same thing. Right, right. Well, I think a lot of the docs have been, you know, bought into this whole paradigm of the cholesterol issue. And it's they they believe it now and they've been trained that way. And and so um, you know, medicine changes very, very slowly. And, you know, all um the impetus is on a model where you know, basically in healthcare, whether it's a healthcare system or a pharmaceutical company, it's that you know, you, you want to be doing procedures or you want to be prescribing medicines. And so the lifestyle issues that, that we focus on, that my practices focus on, that you focus on, you, you know, unfortunately doesn't have a great business model to go with it. It's just what's right for people and what's better for people. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was saying to uh, some clients today that really i'm what i should what i'm doing is telling people how they can improve their lives and get healthier but what i should be doing is putting some money in the stock exchange on the pharmaceutical companies and making money off of the back of that but you know that's not in me to do that because i don't think that's very ethical but yeah you know, we see the model working and so you know you could make money that way and they are making yeah. lots of money that way right Absolutely. It's not something that I'm going to do anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your book and what the focus is and why you came to write it? Okay. Well, well thank you for asking. Um, so I found out how critical um, the continuous glucose monitors were and helping people understand what they needed to do in terms of diet and, and, and lifestyle. Um and I saw how valuable they are in pre-diabetics and non-diabetics and how, as we mentioned before, you know, a doc can be talking to you for years about how you need to modify things. And then you, you look at that graph on your phone one day and you see those spikes and drops in those high levels. And, and it can be absolutely instrumental in, in changing uh, your focus. And in fact, the last chapter in the book is uh, CGMs change lives. And I've had a number of patients where that experience has actually changed their lives and, and allow them to be embrace a, a low carb lifestyle, intermittent fasting and, and lose weight. So, so that was the impetus to begin with. And then of course I built around that an entire program um, with with the focus on intermittent fasting and uh, the strength training um, to help people uh, achieve their goals. And so uh, the continuous CGMs first used diagnostically and then used therapeutic or therapeutically are key to that. So I felt so strongly about it and the way they were impacting people's lives and changing people's lives that I, I, I wrote the book about it. So uh, I'll make a plug available on Amazon. It's the Continuous Glucose Monitor Revolution for Non-Diabetics. Um, and uh, basically, we go through, you know, uh, chapter by chapter, each component of this program. What's the physiology behind it? What are the alternative low-carb and, and keto diets you can pursue? Um, so, so basically, people can pick up that book and, and you know, achieve success with it. So, I mean, here in the UK, where we can buy the constant glucose monitor, would that be a good companion to go with the CGM? Oh, absolutely. It's basically an instruction manual. It's a CGM uh, Bible, if you will, on how to, to use it. 
um, and, you know, goes through all the different components from, from, you know, diet, intermittent fasting, exercise we talked about. Um, and so that was the purpose of the book, to provide a Bible or a guide to people that want to use a CGM to improve their health. Uh, first, again, to discover where exactly they are um, to and, and then to guide their diet. I, I do think I do think seeking out and working with a knowledgeable, low carb clinician, whether that be a physician, you know, or or even just a practitioner that is knowledgeable in that area is a good approach, because I think it's good to have somebody remotely monitoring your data and somebody that you're meeting with periodically. Um, and that's what I do in my practice. I can mention, uh, if I can, uh, you know, I'm licensed in the states in Ohio, Indiana, Florida, and Arizona. And, and basically, I see most of my patients by telemedicine. And, and we basically, um, you know, provide a diagnostic approach followed by a therapeutic intervention. Um, and I usually work with people for about six months with these different components. Um, and often after that, they're good to go. Some people want to use a CGM intermittently long term. And so I continue to work with them as well. Yeah, excellent. So, Dr. Paul, is there anything that we haven't mentioned tonight that you would have liked to have spoken about? No, I, I think actually we have. I mean, we, we, we talked about the CGMs, the fasting insulin levels, the HOMA IRs, the different components of a successful metabolic health program. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, I think, you know, this is a movement, low carb diets are, are no longer a fad. Okay. They've been around 40 or 50 years now. So you can't consider that a fad diet. The success is proven. They're more sustainable, uh, than a calories in calories out approach long-term. So, you know, I think that's the point we wanted to get across. And, you know, if uh, you have listeners in the States that are in Ohio, Indiana, Florida, or, or Arizona and interested in working with me, I'm available. And then the book, The Continuous Glucose Monitor Revolution for Non-Diabetics is available on Amazon. Yeah, we have a lot of listeners in the US. So um, how can people contact you? Okay, my, my website is metabolicsmds.com. So it's metabolic, the word M-E-T-A-B-O-L-I-C-M-D-S.com is my practice website. Uh, I am on Twitter at um, Dr. Colo and on TikTok. I do TikToks, uh, <laughs> dr.colo. Um, and actually I've gotten lots of views on, on uh, you know, some of these topics. I did one view, which was, get off the gosh darn, get off the expletive cardio machines and actually got about 1.2 million views on that. So you, you can follow me on Twitter. I got a YouTube channel um, and uh, that's just um, metabolic MDs um, and also on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Perfect. We'll include all that in the show notes anyway. All right. Um, okay. So before we finish, before we let you go, and I said, is there anything you want to share with us tonight? forgetting that it's your afternoon for me it's nighttime for you it's afternoon yeah. um can you share with us your three top tips okay so so cgms change lives i've seen it over and over again so if you haven't experienced a cgm then go ahead and do that um and then realize that the components of what you can achieve um, I'm going to put a dietary change to include the second item, uh, both both low carb slash keto and intermittent fasting. And then the third one is strength training, which is, you know, more critical than cardiovascular training as we all get older. Mm. So that it's, it, it's basically CGMs change lives, dietary changes to include low carb and intermittent fasting, and then, you know, get in the weight room. Yeah. And don't skip, and don't skip leg day. And don't skip leg day. I like yeah. that. Excellent. Thank you, Paul, for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. 
or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.